community. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, man, just a couple of things before we dive into our time. Uh, number one, I hope you enjoyed that video uh, on our team who just finished coming back home from uh, their trip to Guatemala. It was an incredible experience uh, for them. I love sitting down with them and hearing the stories, hearing how God not just uh, moved right in front of them, but also changed their hearts in various ways as you got to hear, which is always very, very cool. Uh, I got a couple of things for you. Number one, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15 this morning. So if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles or load your Bible, go ahead and do so. I'll ramble a little bit. If you're new or just joining us uh, or been with us for the past couple of weeks, on the chairs, there are these cards that say connect on there. Man, fill one out. Uh, We'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to answer your questions uh, and get back with you. I'm going to grab my, my stuff. Uh, So yeah, we'd love to hang out with you. We'd love to answer your questions. Make sure you fill one out. As you're uh, going to Titus chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, also in the rows and in the back connect desk, there are some Bibles. Those are for you. That is our gift to you and just our way of saying thanks for hanging out with us this morning. And so a couple of weeks ago, we started this series in Titus. We're wrapping up chapter two uh, today. <clears throat> Next week, we'll pretty much start landing the plane in Titus. Uh, and to give you a brief review, uh, the book of Titus is written by the Apostle Paul, and he is writing to this young pastor. His name is Titus, and he is a pastor on the island of Crete, which is just off of the coast of Greece. And as Titus is there, uh, Paul is writing to him to encourage him as a young pastor. Uh, Titus is faced with several challenges in his ministry. And so Paul is writing to him to uh, encourage him as he faces various challenges. But at the same time, Paul is also writing to Titus to remind him uh, of the urgency concerning his mission. Titus's overall mission is to plant churches, to establish leadership in existing churches. And so there is some urgency that comes along with this letter written by Paul to Titus. Over the past couple of weeks, we've walked through several themes, kind of understanding that being the context, we have walked through several themes in our time in Titus. Everything from, man, God's plan of salvation to the qualifications for pastors and godly leaders. We've looked at what it looks like to rebuke false teachers. Uh, We've looked at the the ministry ultimately of confrontation. Uh, Last week, we uh, spent a significant amount of time talking about discipleship. And discipleship is something that is not an option for the believer, but it is a lifestyle. And so we walk through what that should look like or what that can look like in the life of older men and older women and and younger men and and young women. If you'd like to go back to that, all of our sermons are online. I would encourage it. But that was Paul's big emphasis in our time last week, uh, that, that again, discipleship is not an option for the believer. It is, it is a, a lifestyle. Uh, one way or another, you're preaching something. Whether you're preaching something formally or you're preaching something uh, informally, you're constantly teaching uh, others. 
And so today we land on verses 11 through 15, as I mentioned earlier. And, and before I dive into the text, uh, man, I just wanted to share a, a few things uh, related to uh, our time in this section. So this week, uh, man, I get the privilege of getting to hang out with many of you during the week and getting time to spend, or spending time with those in our community group. And throughout several of the conversations that I had this week, there is this common thread that seemed to continually come up again. Now, you may find yourself in a similar season. You may find yourself just kind of in that same... Uh, Oh, I don't know, maybe in that same, uh, that same season, or you might find yourself experiencing similar things. And so the common thread that kind of tied a lot of these conversations together was uh, I, I ended up thinking that, man, a lot of people seem to be wrestling with temptation, that, that temptation is constantly picking at them on their sides. And, and when I say temptation, I do mean that in a very broad, uh, general sense, because it would be specific, or it is specific to others. What I mean by that is, in one, or on one occasion, um, I hear uh, an individual, a husband, say, man, I am, tempt- I am tempted to believe that my worth is found in my job, that my worth is found in me simply working, not necessarily being a son of God, not necessarily that of a husband or a father. And so I'm tempted to believe that I am only worth something if I am working. On the other sense, or in another scenario, uh, I got to listen to students say, man, I am tempted to believe that I should be this kind of a student, that I should be the smartest student, that I should be the best student, that I should be better educated than other students, and I am tempted to believe that, and in doing so, I am tempted to believe that because maybe I bombed a test or something didn't go according to plan, and so they are tempted to believe that who they are really isn't who they should. Be. Uh, we, I, I got to talk to husbands and wives where, man, sometimes what governs them is fear. What, uh, what governs them is, is fear and bitterness at times. And so those are temptations that are very loud and very real and oftentimes can be pretty manipulating or even um, persuasive to believe. Talked to a teacher this week who uh, felt just, uh, man, was listening to, not listening, but hearing lies of inadequacy because she was brought a student who is undergoing some really hard decisions in a really difficult season. And although this teacher was faithful to minister to this student, even walking away afterwards, she just felt inadequate and felt discouraged uh, because these lies seemed to be really loud and very real and constant in her ear. And so it just sounded or it seemed like this week that that this giant thread was temptation for a lot of people. You may be in that similar season, and the truth is that we're going to find uh, ourselves having those days where temptation is a little bit louder, where temptation is just a little bit more real, or lies are getting louder. And the idea behind that is ultimately to take our eyes off of the person and work of Jesus. And so in light of some of those, I want to I read this section, and then I want to dive into a couple of encouragements before we, we really just go into everything. 
So this is beginning in verse 11 in Titus chapter 2. This is what Paul tells Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. God, as we begin our time, um, Lord, as we begin our time, number one, may you be glorified as we dive into your word, as we learn more ultimately about you and, and more about ourselves. So God, I pray that you would be glorified. Number two, I pray that I would, I would be set aside and that it would be your Holy Spirit working and speaking in light of your word. Number three, Lord, I, I know as we begin to talk about grace I know that, uh, man, distractions or temptations that we have been facing uh, throughout the week are still just as loud. And so, God, I pray against those. I pray against those attacks and those attempts. I pray that we would find ourselves gripped by the power of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that our hearts would be stirred with your faith, with the faith that you give us. God, we thank you for this time, and it's in uh, your name that we pray. Amen. In light of this thread that I was talking about earlier, that, that temptation seems to come uh, towards everybody's way, or maybe you're feeling discouraged. I don't want to just say it's only temptation, but perhaps you're feeling discouraged. Uh, man, there's a couple of realities that, that come with that. Because this sermon isn't necessarily saying, oh man, everything's going to be okay. You might have to go back into some of these realities tomorrow. You might have to go back into some of these realities tonight. But one thing that is very clear, that when we begin to talk about discouragement, or when we begin to talk about, uh, man, temptations that are coming our way, there are a couple of things that I think happen so very quickly. Number one, we are quick to forget who Jesus says we are. When you read through the scriptures, one of the most common themes or stories is that God is constantly trying to remind us of who he says we are in light of his work. And so when temptations or particularly discouragement comes, we are quick to forget about our gospel identity and are very quick to remember who we once were. We are quick to default to who we once were. We are quick to be tempted to think that we are the same person we used to be, that there has been no change. That tends to be one of the things that happens. One of the other things that tends to happen is that temptation is always going to begin with a question. Discouragement in and of itself begins with a question. If we walk all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 3, the first thing that the serpent told Eve was, did God really say? It always begins with a question. Did God really say, are you sure? Are you who you actually say you are? Temptation is always going to begin with a question. 
And so my encouragement for you this morning is that you and that we would be a people who look to the person and work of Jesus first and always. That we would be a people who look to the person and work of Jesus first and always. And that in these difficult times, whether they would be momentarily or they would be seasons, that we would not forget about the grace of God. That we would not forget about the grace of God. I think too often we view grace as simply God giving us a helping hand. Or we view grace as what the phrase says, uh, always look on the brighter side of things. Things could always be better. We tend to cheapen grace. But I would remind you, and we'll talk a little bit more about grace if you're unfamiliar with it, but I would remind you that when it comes to grace, it is not only God's unmerited favor. Grace is the very thing that brings dead hearts to life. It is not only God's unmerited favor. Grace brings dead hearts to life. And if you walk away with anything this morning, I would ask that you walk away with this, that the beauty of Jesus is the gift of grace. I'll say it one more time. The beauty of Jesus is the gift of grace. As we walk through verses 11 through 15, what is ultimately going to be the foundation and the vehicle for our time is the grace of of God. So we're going to talk about grace, but then we're also going to look at what grace does for and in the believer. The first thing that we need to talk about when it comes to grace is ultimately what it is. And there's a couple of things that grace is, but this, this first section is titled Grace Meeting Us Where We Are. In Paul's opening statement or an opening verse, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We first need to define what grace is, and that is unmerited favor. I'd mentioned that just earlier. Grace is God's goodness and kindness toward humanity in spite of our sin. It is God's goodness and kindness towards humanity. Grace is God taking action to save his people from their sinful rebellion. Grace is a response to the fall. Let me read you this quote briefly. This is by Carl Truman. He's a professor, and he writes this about grace in light of it being a response. He says, grace is God's response to the fall. And it must always be understood in that context. This means that one's understanding of sin inevitably shapes one's understanding of grace. And one's understanding of grace will reveal what one thinks about sin. When we fully appreciate the destructive and pervasive effects of the fall, we more clearly recognize the need for grace to address our fundamental problem. Here's what he's saying. When we begin to talk about grace, not just as God's unmerited favor, not just as God's action, but when we begin to, uh, to think and talk about grace in light of a response, what that should teach us is that grace doesn't only save us. We shouldn't only have this understanding uh, that we are saved by grace. We should also have this recognition of what we've been saved from. 
I think many times when we begin to talk about grace, the grace of God, it is simply that, a helping hand. But when we dive deeper into the meaning of grace, particularly as a response to our sinful rebellion, it is not just that God has saved us, it is that God has saved us from something. That God has acted, He has taken action and driven Himself or put Himself into human history, uh, diving into the mess that is our lives, living a sinless life, dying a sinner's death, and freely giving Grace that cannot be earned. So it is not merely, or it is not only just being saved. It is recognizing what we have been saved from. Grace is also understanding. Grace is also understanding the person and work of Jesus in the flesh. That's what Paul writes. For the grace of God has appeared. See, when Paul is talking about the grace of God, he has, that, that the grace of God has appeared, what Paul is talking about is that God entered into human history as Jesus Christ. It was, and he is, the supreme revelation of grace. That by nature, God is a saving God, offering the gift of salvation to all who repent and believe. Man, how much does God love us? Man, the Father sent His Son. So the Father pursues us by sending His Son into human history. He dies a sinner's death. uh, And on that pays our debt, giving us His credit. Then He dies and resurrects. He ascends back to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And then He sends God the Holy Spirit who begins to transform us and give us a new heart. It is grace upon grace upon grace for the believer. It doesn't just end in this one moment. It is continuous. And finally, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. When it comes to salvation, we must understand that without grace, there is no salvation. Without grace, there is no salvation, which means that grace is costly. Grace is costly. It doesn't demand perfection, but it does give us a new direction. It is the grace of God that brings dead bones to life. Go to, uh, if you've got your Bibles, let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. This is verses uh, 8 through 10. This is what Paul says. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So we have talked about grace being unmerited favor. We have talked about grace manifesting itself as a person uh, uh, and work of Jesus. We have talked about grace in light of salvation. The other thing that he talks about here is that grace is a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, not a result of what we're doing. Salvation for the believer isn't because you're awesome. It is because God is holy and righteous and loving. And he goes on to say, 
not of works, not of your own doing, excuse me, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, so that God would receive all of the glory. So that God would receive all of the glory in the work of salvation. He continues, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Man, are are works a bad thing? No, they're not a bad thing. But works are a response to the work God has done in us. Moving, Moving along into verses 12 and 13. The next thing that we are taught about grace is that it transforms us. As we continue reading, he goes on to say, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. That word, that word self-controlled, he, he, he uh, used that word about three or four times last week. He uses it again in this section. What he's talking about in this section is that that. Grace transforms the believer that when we're coming to sanctification, the process of sanctification, so man, God calls us to himself and then he is at work in the believer. How? Man, he gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us his Holy Spirit to renew our minds, to change our hearts. That the reason we're able to renounce ungodliness, the reason we're able to renounce worldly passions isn't just because we're disciplined in self-control, but because the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer. Someone who has the Holy Spirit is able to be self-controlled because they recognize distractions and temptations at their side, but their eyes are fixed on the person and work of Jesus. Sanctification means that we are growing in our love for Jesus and growing in our hatred for sin. That's what sanctification means. So when he is talking about that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives, man, that is for you, the individual, the believer. Man, that grace transforms the heart. Grace renews the mind. Grace also leads us to godliness. The last thing he says is uh, worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Man, what does it mean to lead a godly life? That we are becoming more and more like Jesus. That the work of Jesus in the believer is now expressed in daily life. Your faith is not private. It's personal, but it is not private. Living a godly life bears witness to the gospel. We talked about this last week. A godly life bears witness to the gospel, both when things are going well and when you drop the ball. It bears witness to the gospel. The next thing that grace does is that grace points us to Jesus. In verse 13, he says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, uh, the appearing in the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So grace points us to Jesus. How does it point us to Jesus? The first thing is that we worship while we wait. We worship while we wait. Grace teaches us to look at biblical truths so that we would embrace, so that we would grip hope. When you see that word hope, it is not used in the same way it is used today. Today, it implies wishful thinking. Today, it implies a leap of, uh, I don't want to use faith. That's cheap. But it does imply that you're stepping out into the darkness, that you don't know what's going to happen. When we look at hope as per Scripture, what it means, what it means is having biblical certainty on something that has not yet happened. That is what hope means. So when Paul writes, waiting for our blessed hope, we are worshiping God while we wait. We are worshiping God while he wait, because the truth is that the appearing of the glory of of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, is coming. So what is he talking about? He is talking about the return of Jesus. The return of Jesus, this is where he restores and makes all things new, where the believer is united with him in eternal sonship. This is where Jesus returns to reclaim his bride, the church. And until that time comes, we worship while we wait. We worship while we wait. Grace points us to Jesus. Grace also reminds us of our identity and our activity. Toward the end, Paul goes on to say, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Here's the first thing that Paul says. He talks about redemption. There's a lot of things that come under redemption. There's a lot of things that come under redemption. The first thing that comes under redemption is the fact that God gave himself. That means that God voluntarily gave himself. R.C. Sproul uh, would say that there was only one good person in history and he volunteered for death that he voluntarily gave himself to redeem us. Well, we got to talk about that word. When you read through the New Testament and you see the word redeem or redemption, it's most of the time, if not all of the time, it's used in the context of slavery. That someone who was a slave owner could purchase an individual out of slavery to make them their own. In other words, they could redeem them. It was not used in a positive way. When you read through Scripture, they're using that same term to describe and illustrate what God has done. That God has purchased us out of slavery to sin and made us His own. That He has redeemed us and He has made us His own so that we would never return to who we once were. That is what redemption means. Furthermore, when it comes to redemption, it also means that if he has redeemed us out of slavery to our sin and made us his own, that means that our debt has been paid. That he has died paying our debt with his blood. Paying our debt with his blood. 
And for the believer, and I hope this encourages you, for the believer, I want you to think about what he has done for you specifically. I'm not talking about today or other time. I'm talking about this. That, man, if you find yourself disheartened and discouraged, if you find yourself just with these temptations that are just so loud, man, let Scripture point you back to the person and work of Jesus. Let Scripture point you back to what He has done, that He, specifically to you, has redeemed you. He has called you out of slavery to sin and made you His own. He paid really good money for you. The second thing that Jesus does is that he cleanses us. Paul says, from all lawlessness to purify for himself. So he purifies us. Right? First John, I think it's 1.9, says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful not only to forgive us, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can go far back even into the Old Testament. One of my favorite ones, I think, is Ezekiel 36, where he says, I will clean you with water. I will, give, I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That it is God who purifies us. It is God who saves us. It is God who gives us a new heart. It is God who has pardoned our sin. It is God who has rescued us. It is God who makes us new. That's what it means to be cleansed, to be purified. Continuing, he says, for his own possession. That we belong to him. This is a beautiful reminder and truth for the believer. No one can take that away from you. That you belong to him. That all of this work and that really good money that he put on the table, all of that was to call you his. No one can take that from you. No one can take that from you. Elsewhere in scripture, it says that we are his prized possession. No one can take that away from you. And finally, the last thing that Paul says in that verse he says, who are zealous for good works. A people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This now talks and teaches about our activity as Christians. That now grace is our motivation. We have looked at who grace is. We have looked at what grace does, how it transforms us, how it points us to Jesus. And we are talking about how grace reminds us of our identity. That is what God has done and who God says we are. And now we're looking at what we do in light of what God has done. And grace is now the motivation for the believer. Because you have been given a new heart, because your mind is now renewed, your motivation is now different. Your motivation is grace. It is fueled by grace in light of what God has done for you, in light of what God has done in you, and in light of what God has done through you. Grace is now the motivation. Grace is now the motivation. Our works are the natural response to His work in us. Our works are the natural response to His work in us. Said it differently, who you are determines what you do. 
said it differently again. What you believe shapes how you live. It shapes how you live. Grace saves, grace transforms, grace points us to the work of Jesus. It points us to who we are in light of his work, and it helps us determine what we now do. Our faith is not private. It's personal, but it's not private, no matter how much you'd like it to be. Right? And he closes by saying, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So there's a couple of things that he says. Now, one of the things that we could look at in light of this last verse is that Paul is summarizing everything that he has said up until now. From uh, chapter 1, verse 1, to where he's at now, some people would argue that this is even the main idea of the entire letter. I wouldn't disagree, and I don't disagree with the other one. But what we are going to do is this last verse, we're going to apply it just to verse 11 to 14, what we just walked through. So he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. When he is talking about declare these things, man, declare the gospel in light of everything that has been said, in light of the grace of God, my encouragement to you would be preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remember what God has done for you, what he is doing in you, and what he has done through you. Preach the gospel to yourself. If we are so susceptible to forgetting who we are and defaulting to who we once were, we are not preaching the gospel to ourselves. When we begin to preach the gospel to ourselves, we are reminded of the grace of God. We are reminded of what God has done and is doing. We are reminded, everybody wants to know about purpose. We are reminded of our purpose. Ephesians 2 said that we are his workmanship, that there has been work prepared for us beforehand so that we would walk in light of what he has already done. Preach the gospel to yourself. Make that not just a habit, but a part of your lifestyle. One of the most common and awkward questions, though it shouldn't be, uh, especially when I get to talk to some of the younger guys, is, uh, uh, man, they they either want to learn theology or they want to jump into ministry, and that's cool. And so then I ask, what's the gospel? And they freeze. They freak out. They don't want to do ministry ever again. Right? (laughs) That's one of, that, that should be, man, A simple answer, if we're preaching the gospel, if we find ourselves in the word of God, if we find ourselves reminding ourselves of the truth of God's word, of the promises of God's word, and the work of God's word, declare these things. And in addition to that, he goes on to say, rebuke and exhort, or exhort and rebuke, I can't remember. Right? He goes on to say to exhort and rebuke one another. When we're talking about exhortation, right? It's not just encouragement, like, hey, bro, you'll do better. It's not just that. Exhortation means that we come alongside the individual, that we come alongside of the individual to declare the gospel to that individual, because it is so easy for us to forget who we are and default to who we were. 
we work out this grace-filled life in church. You ever hear that, man? You should do church together. What that means is that we are living life and sharing life together so that we could exhort one another, so that we can declare the gospel to one another, so that we can disciple one another, so that we can encourage one another. Because it's so easy for us to forget who we are, sometimes it takes a brother or a sister coming alongside of us and saying, this is who God says you are. This is who God says you are. Let me encourage you. Sure, we might need to look at a few other things, but before we get to some of those practical realities, let me remind you of who God says you are. How often do we preach the gospel and disciple one another with the gospel to ourselves? Or to one another, excuse me. If we don't disciple one another, not just people who don't know Jesus, but also one another, then we in this giant room are assuming the gospel. We talked a little bit about that last week, that we take this big assumption by assuming everyone knows the gospel just because we're here on a Sunday morning. That everyone knows the gospel just because we got together at community group. That everyone knows the gospel just because we labeled something as fellowship night. If we do not disciple and declare these things to one another, we assume the gospel and what happens is eventually we will lose the gospel. More significantly, the gospel stops being good news and it is now old news. So declare these things to one another. He goes on to say to rebuke, right? Rebuke with all authority. Now, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that when we're looking at rebuke, there is a purpose behind rebuke. The purpose isn't just so that you're right or just so that you know more, but it is to point the individual to sound faith. It is to point the individual to the person and work of Jesus so that they would be gripped by the grace of Jesus. That is the beauty of Jesus. It is his grace. That is why we rebuke to point others to sound faith, to point others to the person and work of Jesus. But it's hard, I know. It is. And it is necessary. It is necessary. And finally, he says, let no one disregard you. Where I would encourage you in terms of not being disregarded, it would be to hold conviction. Hold conviction how can I say this? Hold conviction in light of what the Holy Spirit has implanted in you. Now that could sound super spiritual, but we know that the Holy Spirit does not speak or work apart from Scripture. So if we are going to hold conviction that the Holy Spirit has implanted in us, we know that it is a conviction that is founded upon the foundation of God's Word. Hold conviction. Hold conviction and make sure that your conviction points back to the beauty of Jesus and His grace. Stand firm in encouragement and in adversity. It is the beauty of Jesus and His grace that brings glory to God and Him alone. It is the beauty of and grace of Jesus that brings God all of the glory. So when we were talking about not being disregarded, hold conviction. 
conviction that is founded in the Word of God, conviction that has been, pl- in, been implanted in you by the Holy Spirit as, it, as He reveals it in His Word. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke. Let no one disregard you. May your eyes be turned to the beauty of Jesus and His grace. Join me in prayer. God, we are so forgetful. Not only, do we, uh, not only do we miss it, but we are so forgetful. I think sometimes we give temptation much more credit than we should because we tend to talk about temptation and discouragement more than the beautiful truths that you reveal to us through your word. And God, that, that's me. I am quick to grow in anxiety. I am quick to think about uh, what I need to change or do as opposed to looking at what you have said uh, and what you have done. God, this week sounds like maybe it was a tough week for many people in a variety of ways. God, I pray that you would, <clears throat> that you would fill and my brothers and sisters, with your grace. That through your word this morning, you would remind them that, man, it is your grace that is at work through all of this. That it is by grace that they have been rescued from sinful rebellion. That it is by grace that they are transforming. That it is by grace that they are able to look to the person and work of Jesus. That it is by grace that we are reminded of who we are and what we do. And so we don't need to... um, We don't need to believe the lies or even give in to the temptation because your truth is much greater. God, may we be a people that in in light of adversity, in light of difficulty, that we wouldn't give credit to that difficulty or temptation or discouragement, but that we would quickly turn to you, bringing you glory and reminding us of your beautiful grace. We ask all these things. Uh, in your name. Uh, and, and before we amen it, uh, let me pray for offering. <laughs> God, we also transition into this time of offering. We transition into this time of offering as, as a continuation of our worship. God, when, when we give generously or as we give generously and faithfully and cheerfully, Lord, this is a result of the work of your work in us. This isn't just because we're good and it's another part of our time. This is a response to your work in us. Part of grace as transforming is that one of the best ways that it is, it is displayed is in our giving and in our thanksgiving. So God, may this be a, man, may this be a personal and a public uh, expression of worship and your work in us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.